0: Well, welcome to our first class on the uh, Blessed Virgin Mary in the Book of Common Prayer, the BVM in the BCP, as I'm abbreviating it. Uh, And we'll be probably doing this uh, this week, next week, possibly one other week. Um, My wife informed me that the Zoom invite indicated like seven or eight weeks. Yeah, that's not happening. Uh, We all have Christmas to get to, and I don't think there's that much material for, for the prayer book anyway. So, um, as, as usual, I want to start with giving us, uh, giving some background on, um, uh, yes, k- kind of starting from the early church and moving forward a little bit before we get into what's going on in the prayer book proper. Um, so, probably the most important things that happen in the patristic era regarding um, how the church looks at, at our Lord's mother is in light of those first four ecumenical councils. So um, in, the, in the first, oh, eight centuries or so of the church after Constantine, so once, once there's actually a Christian um, empire, we, we, we start to see these ecumenical or worldwide councils. They're never attended by everybody, but it's supposed to represent the entire church periodically being held to deal with various um, controversies at the time. So the first of these is the Council of Nicaea in 325. And um, this was convened to uh, settle the issue of whether or not the sun is truly divine or whether he's a creature. We're, we're, we're battling the, the, um, the heresy of Arianism. Um, and of course, the council comes down with the with with the with um, affirming that Jesus is indeed God, uh, fully God and fully man. This gets reaffirmed in three eighty one at the Council of Constantinople. That's the second ecumenical council, and they um, they also do a little bit of work on the divinity of the Holy Spirit there. And from these two councils, we get what we now have as the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed really is kind of the creed of the church, um, historically, everybody in one way or another affirms what's in the Nicene creed, and those that don't are, um, you know, basically, you know, outside the pale of orthodoxies, we might say, and in, in, um, in these first two councils, the main, the main thing going on is this phrase in the creed that we have in our translation as um, regarding Jesus, and was incarnate By the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man Um, so so recognizing the role of Mary in the incarnation. uh, With these first two councils, Uh, the third council, the Council of Ephesus in 431 tackles some issues regarding Mary very specifically because the particular controversy at that time was whether it was appropriate for Mary to have the title um, Theotokos or whether it ought to only be Christotokos. Is she, is she the God-bearer or just the Christ-bearer? Is she the mother of God or the mother of Christ? And again, what we find out is that it's not really so much about Mary as it is about what, we're, what are we saying about Jesus. And the council very um, clearly affirms Mary's role as um, mother of God, um, the the Theotokos in Greek, um, the 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 God bearer. That's the first major thing that happens with Mary. Um, this gets affirmed, reaffirmed in the Fourth Council, the, the, which is the Council of Chalcedon in four fifty one. And out of Chalcedon, the main the major controversy was: um, Does Christ have Um, two natures a a human nature and a divine nature or just one nature and the council very much affirms you know as 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 we see the picture in the scriptures that he has two distinct natures a human nature and a divine nature the importance of this as far as our conversation over the next couple weeks is that he receives his divine nature from his mother you know, that's the natural way to receive his humanity is from his mother. And, it, and the council does in, in, what we, what, in, in a statement that's called the Chalcedonian definition. Um, you can look that up, I can post it later if you'd like. Um, it does reaffirm this title of Mary Theotokos. Now, folks coming from a, a Protestant background may find that title mother of God kind of suspect. Okay, what are you saying? I mean, you know, obviously God pre-existed Mary. Yes, that's absolutely true. Nobody denies that. <laughs> but the idea is, is that the one who she bore uh, was and is fully God. You know, He didn't become God after his birth. But he was always God even while in the womb. And so, so that's why um, we usually kind of lump Ephesus and Chalcedon together when it comes to these particular issues. Um, so, so yeah, those are the really two big issues is her, her role in the incarnation that um, our Lord's human nature comes from her and that is appropriate and even, even proper to give her the title of Theotokos, the God bearer or the, or the mother of God. Um, let's stop, any, any questions about that? Um, before we move on, okay. If anything pops up, feel free to uh, just unmute yourself and uh, and and we'll 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 look at that. What happens then, um, as we kind of get into the Middle Ages and out of the Patristic period, is in the West, especially, we see um, the growth of the cult of saints and some kind of. Odd ways we would see them today. Um, again, depending on what, what your background is, you may you may or may not see them odd. But I certainly find them a little bit a little bit odd. Um, and we don't need to get into all the details on that. But what we do see is that in pre-Reformation medieval England, um, there is a particular Marian devotion. Um, in popular piety such that England begins to get this uh, popularly this title the dowry of Mary kind of like England belongs to her <laughs> you know sort of thing um, and so so we, we, we see this 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 very very widespread um, particular devotion to Mary in medieval England um, one of the things that also happens with that is um, that English church architecture has um, a particular form of a side chapel that they often call the Lady Chapel, which again, kind of a small prayer chapel that's that's devoted particularly to Mary. Once we get into the Reformation, though, um, there, there is very much a reaction against this because the reformers saw a lot of the medieval approach to to the Lord's Mother to be idolatrous, and particularly. There was a popular notion throughout the medieval Western church of Mary as being a co-redeemer or a co-mediator with Christ. And indeed, through a lot of the medieval church, um, again, kind of on a popular level, um, you would go to Mary before you'd go to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the stern judge and you're likely to get um, a very angry answer if you go to Jesus. But Mary's his mother and Mary can calm him down for you. You know, that's kind of the the popular notion and the reformers react against this um, very, very deeply. So a lot of the the medieval Marian devotion um, gets expunged in the Reformation um, as as being seen as as somewhat idolatrous. Um, And what we, but we do still see a recognition and even a focus on Mary's role in the incarnation um for an example of this if you would, if in the back of your prayer book you'll have article number two which is on page um 603 where it's it's the article about the son of god so of the word of god which was made very man the son which is the word of the father begotten from everlasting of the father the very and eternal god and of one substance with the father took man's nature in the womb of the blessed virgin of her substance. So the two whole and perfect natures, that is to say, the Godhood, the Godhead and the manhood were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God, very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried to reconcile his father to us and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for actual sins of man. So, we still do see this title um, among the English reformers and and many of the continental reformers too of Mary as the Blessed Virgin. The Blessed Virgin Mary is not um, kind of rags of popery as uh, some of the reformers would would use the phrase, or the Puritans might use the phrase, but but it was still considered a very appropriate title because of her role in the incarnation as the one who bore God, uh, bore God the Son gave birth to him and um, through her, he received his human nature. And we do also see in the Reformation period, um, we do see some new lady chapels dedicated, although with a very different focus and some new churches from time to time. It's not widespread, but you do see from time to time. And you do see um, from time to time poetry that almost, Seems medieval in its in its Mary Marian devotion, um, you know. For example, uh, there's some by by uh, Bishop Lancelot Andrews, who was one of the um, one of the translators of the of the uh, King James Bible. So we do see that from time to time. Though we we by no means are going to see the English reformers or the divines of the time um, promoting prayers to Mary Mary as a as a as a mediatrix. Uh, Mary is a co-redemptress, anything like that. Um, It's really this focus on her role in the incarnation. And because of that, uh, Mary having a very special place among the saints of the church. Okay, questions, comments on um, on our, our history, and then we'll get into the prayer book proper. Okay, pretty straightforward um so we don't see a whole lot of direct um direct involvement with with mary in the prayer book but there might be more than we would see on the surface uh for one she's mentioned in every single service because we have the creeds right that that role in the incarnation is important enough that it's part of both the nicene creed and the Apostles' Creed, um, you know, we, we already read from the Apostles' Creed that that clause um, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man in the uh, in, in the Apostles' Creed. So that's the Nicene Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, um, we just have this very, very simple clause that. Um, you know for me that he was born of the Virgin Mary but either way um Mary's role in the incarnation is acknowledged um at least in passing in the creeds uh one of the things that's important to note is that in um some of the more modern translations of the creed it's been alleged that there's kind of a downplaying or making a little bit ambiguous the virgin birth, kind of as, um, you know, theological liberalism, that was always one of the things that it caused into doubt. Um, Whether or not that's true uh, in some of those more modern translations, it's very clear in the Greek, in the Latin, and in our prayer book English um, that, uh, you know, that affirming the virgin birth um, completely. You know, that, that, that he was born from the Virgin Mary, um, her being a virgin uh, when he was born. Uh, so we get that every single service. In morning and evening prayer, we also get a canticle, um, one in each service that addresses or at least touches on, on Mary. So in morning prayer, the canticle in question is the Te Deum Laudamus. You can find this on page uh, 10 in your prayer books. If you have your prayer book, look on page 10, the Te Deum Laudamus. Now the Te Deum is one of three options uh, for the first canticle. So that's the canticle after the Old Testament reading. And a canticle is a hymn or or other sort of uh, sung poetry. Usually it would be from the Bible, although we do have some this example, really the Te Deum, which is not—it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's old, but it's not that old. And we also have the other two uh, options for the first canticle are from the apocrypha, rather from the canonical scriptures. But but that's you know that's usually the apocrypha is lumped in there when we're talking about canticles. The Te Deum is a bit of a bit of an oddball in being called a canticle because it's not it's not biblical, but it does express um a very biblical trinitarian faith um and and we're not going to look at the whole thing but i did want to look at the second clause about uh, uh, two-thirds of the way down page 10 Uh, so the first clause addresses god the father the second one addresses uh, god the son thou art the king of glory o christ thou art the everlasting son of the father when thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, thou didst humble thyself to be born of a virgin." Um, that's a bit of a paraphrase. Uh, the 1662 prayer book um, has it phrased like this. instead of um, This is, when thou tookest upon thee to deliver man, uh, thou didst not abhor the virgin's womb. And that is a lot more literal to the Latin. And this is a hymn that was originally composed in Latin. Um, Again, the virgin birth being a major feature of the incarnation, something that we always go back to. And um, in some way, we honor Mary because of that, because of her role in that. Um, and a little bit of other background on the Te Deum um, it is a, it's most likely a fourth century hymn. Um, it's been traditionally said in, in, uh, in the offices, gosh, from time immemorial. Um, possibly Saint Ambrose or Saint Augustine or Saint Hilary of Poitiers uh, uh, wrote it, but it's definitely a Western hymn um, in Latin from that from that period of time. Um, so yeah, the te, the te Deum, acknowledging the incarnation. Um, in evening prayer, oh, and uh, just liturgically speaking, um, the Te Deum is kind of the default first canticle in morning prayer, although, um, following older monastic tradition it's often not said during advent and lent but instead the benedicite or the benedictus sr um and really in in the in, in the in the monastic offices that, that predate the prayer book the prayer book was based off of the Te Deum was really more of a sunday canticle um, even, even at that. But um, yeah, there's, there's widespread practice among many Anglicans of always doing the Te Deum as the default. Um, our practice tends to be that we'll substitute the Benedictus S during um, Advent and Lent, um, but that's, but it's a very, very neat, neat canticle. Let's turn then to evening prayer, to the, to the first canticle again, um, but this one's an evening prayer. And this is the Magnificat on page 26. Now the Magnificat is from Luke 1, and that's the song of Mary. It's Mary's song from, um, from, from after the Annunciation and, 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 the, and the time of the Visitation. And um, you know, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing here. Uh, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my savior. He, remembering his mercy, hath hope in his servant Israel, as he promised to our forefathers Abraham and his seed forever. So so we have basically um, Mary's articulation under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost of of the gospel um, in in the Magnificat. This is definitely one of my favorite pieces of scripture. And um, do notice that it does say... um, Behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. And we do continue to do so. Um, I, I think, I think that's, uh, that's, that's important to point out. Um, and liturgically speaking, though we do have two Psalms as alternates to the Magnificat, If you remember from um, our Basics of the BCP class, those of you all for that, uh, those two Psalms were really kind of throwing a bone to the Puritans. Uh, (laughs) And um, I I don't know anybody that in any parish that doesn't do the Magnificat as the first canticle and evening prayer. Um, and, And the big issue was that the Puritans prior to the time when they were, you know, after the English civil war and they ended up, you know, becoming out of the Church of England. So pre-English Civil War, when they were a faction within the Church of England, many Puritans anyway, um, they, they very much were objected to the gospel canticles because they were afraid that it would lead to uh, Roman Catholic superstitions. Um, so these two Psalms were thrown in kind of, okay, if you don't want to do that, here's a couple of other options. But again, I don't know anybody that, that, that uses anything other than the Magnificat as the first canticle in evening prayer. It really is um, the, the main one to do. Uh, so these end up getting recited traditionally every single day. So we have a little bit of, of, of um, remembering Mary's role in the incarnation in every single service, every single day. We also have though in the prayer book, well, let me, let me stop there um, before we go any further. Um, any, anything on the canticles, um, any, any questions or comments on the, the use of the creeds, the canticles and how Mary plays into, into those, those statements? Yeah, Tina. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just was wondering. I mean, I guess I often use the cradle of prayer, and I was wondering if you knew their reasoning and why they don't use the the morning um, one that you're seeing, Because they don't. They 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 use. And I was thinking maybe it was because the other one was shorter, and they're recording it every time. But yeah, they do um, occasionally use the Te Deum. Um, and they and they typically use the same the same melody that I do when I when I lead it, um, uh-huh. but I but I suspect the main reason is because it's shorter, um, you know. And and really, when, when I'm using the bened uh, outside of Lent and Advent, when I'm using the Benedictus s, it's always because it's shorter. And I very very rarely end up using the Benedicite because it is so darn long. Uh, you know, I almost have to kind of. Uh, kind of um, discipline myself to, to occasionally do the te when, when it's a day off or something like that. So um, yeah, yeah, that's most likely the reason why. Um, and, and we do find that that among users of the 1928, even though the Te Deum is kind of the default, um, the, Benedict, the Benedictus s is used more often because it's so short. Uh, Lily was telling me one time that um, b- back when at All Saints, uh, morning prayer was the uh was the primary service um because they didn't have a regular priest so we're talking back in the 1990s um, we uh s- some of the lay folk would um would call uh the te deum the tedium because they thought it was too long for the <laughs> to be used and they didn't want it to be used in mass it was or in the service it was too long <laughs> uh, which which is unfortunate it's just a great hymn but uh, but yeah <laughs> All right, any, anything else on the, uh, on the canticles or the creeds and that daily, that daily um, mentioning of Mary's role in the incarnation? Okay, well, let's move on then. We do have, um, so let's talk about the, the feasts that, that, that discuss and center on in some way uh, the Virgin Mary and her role that we have in the prayer book. So um, one thing that that we do see coming out of the Middle Ages is that the devotion to Mary gets in such a state that there are more Marian feasts in the the calendar than there are um, feasts that are directly relating to the life of Jesus um, coming to the Middle Ages. And in some way that remains in Roman Catholicism today. Um, If you look at the um, what they call the holy days of obligation. So these are days when, according to Roman Catholic uh, theology, if you don't go to mass or you don't have a very good reason for not going to mass, um, it is a mortal sin and your soul is in peril. You need to go to confession for that um, because these are kind of your high, high, holy days. And if you don't do this, you know, you're 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 basically rebelling against the Lord. Um, Again, this is Roman Catholic theology. We do not have that concept in Anglicanism um, because, you know, these are not things that are um, commanded by scripture. So, you know, your soul does not get imperiled by the church's calendar. Um, But uh, yeah, there, there are more holy days of obligation that are Marian than there are holy days of obligation relating to, to, to our Lord Jesus. And um, that's, that's a little, that's a little odd. I mean, there, there are a lot of feasts relating to, to our Lord, but, but less of them are holy days of obligation. And so you kind of see this, this hierarchy in even even modern day Roman Catholic calendars Um, that gets very much chopped down in, um, in the prayer book. We're really left with two main Marian, Marian Feast Days in the prayer book. On February 2nd, we have the purification uh, of of St. Mary the Virgin. Um, You can find the collect and the propers for this on page 231. Um, Some prayer, so in our prayer book, the official title is The Presentation of Christ in the Temple, commonly called the Purification of St. Mary the Virgin. Um, That's always on February 2nd. It's also sometimes called colloquially candle mass because uh, of a, a long standing tradition to bless the candles uh, uh, that would be used for the year on that day, but um, this is the feast, where we remember um, The holy family going to the temple so that Mary could present the purification offerings um, that, the, that the law required and that's where um, the, where, where they meet up with uh, Simeon, and we have the, the other canticle from the evening prayer, the Newt Dimittis from that, and the prophetess Anna while they were, while they were in the temple. Um, so, you know, these is, this is, this are the events from uh, the tail end of Luke chapter two. Um, so, yeah, our prayer book has the primary title is the Presentation of Christ in the Temple. Other prayer books, I think the older prayer books tend to um, have the purification of St. Mary the Virgin is the primary title. I suspect the reason why ours uh, made the presentation as the main, um, the, the main focus was kind of, frankly, American anti-Catholic sentiment. <laughs> um, you know, the, the American Protestant churches historically um, were kind of united against, uh, against Catholicism, um, you know, in, in culturally speaking. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the purification is one of those feast days. The other one is the Annunciation on March twenty fifth, um, and you can find that just a few pages over, um, page two hundred and thirty five. Um, yes, thirty five and two, thirty five and two, thirty six, and uh, the Annunciation. On March 25th, that's nine months before what? To the day, nine months to the day before. Yes, I see somebody mouthing at Christmas exactly. Um, and so that's when our Lord Jesus is conceived, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. If you have the same Advent calendars that my daughters have, um, we we over the course of the last. Uh, uh, oh, gosh, 10 days we've read most of the verses of the Annunciation as part of that. Um, the, the Annunciation is also where the first half of the Hail Mary prayer comes from, which is not a prayer that we have in the prayer book. Um, and it's, it's um, yeah, we, we're, not, we're I'm not, I'm not going to get into some of the history on that. That's, that's kind of beyond the class. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. But, but yeah, this is a very important Um, one of the more important feast days of the church again because of its role in the incarnation and there are some that um, have posited historically that our dating for christmas comes from the dating of the annunciation so the logic kind of goes like this and i'm not sure i'm not sure the veracity of this but it rings true to me Does, does that make sense like there's a lot of this this is not something that everybody's agreed upon but this is one theory that um, makes a lot of sense to me and I've heard it in many places as a legitimate theory Um, there was a common belief in the ancient world that a righteous man died um, on the same day that he was either born or conceived and so doing the math they had figured out sometime you know I don't know second third century something like that that um, Jesus probably died on March 25th and so then um, by the logic of the day, the Annunciation was then celebrated on the 25th, and that, therefore Christmas is celebrated on December 25th, nine months later. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one theory. Um, it's a theory that makes sense to me. The other theory is that Christmas comes first, and then the Annunciation gets backdated nine months from there. Um, but um, but I, either way, this is, this, is, this is traditionally a very important day. Um, on the Anglican calendar. Um, even post-Reformation, uh, this, was, this was often called Lady Day, you know, the Day of Our Lady. And um, while the calendar New Year was January 1 and the church New Year was Advent 1, uh, a lot of the civil New Year, um, kind of the way they, they handled business and agriculture and whatever, a lot of more of the, the civil sphere of life um, used March 25th. As as one of those primary markers of the new year, um, you know, and we see we see that, that that's one of the things that happens kind of in parochial life, even in post Reformation England, is that um, the major saints' days mark a lot of the seasons. I mean, to this day, a lot of the colleges their fall term they call the Michaelmas term, you know, because it, because it begins right around Saint Michael Saint Michael and All Angels Day, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, the Annunciation is the other, and that's a very important feast. Um, our tradition until this year in the um, San Antonio Archdeaconry, for several years, we would celebrate the Annunciation all together, kind of doing a joint service um, on that day. So yeah, these are the two Marian feasts that are retained in the, as, as major feast days. We call them red letter days in the Book of Common Prayer um in the in the 1928 book of common prayer they're the only ones because we don't have what we call black letter days and we'll talk about that in just a second um but um in in other in another other, uh the english versions especially the 1662 we do have some additional commemorations which they call black letter days so black letter days are on the calendar but they don't have a special um, collect go- epistle and gospel. So you would kind of, you know, they'd be on the calendar, you would commemorate something that day, but you don't have a special service for the commemoration. Whereas red letter days were feast days or fast days of the church. And the reason why they call them that is because they were often printed, the major ones in red letters and those those commemorations in black letters. Um, in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, um, we have several other um black letter days that, that relate to the life of the blessed virgin mary so in december we have the conception uh so when, when mary was when mary was conceived um, that was just last week or just a couple days ago i think it might have been tuesday um again in not being in our calendar i don't always keep up with that um yeah it was it was just earlier this week um yeah, so that, that's, that's in one of the black letter days. Uh, the visitation, so when, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, that's, celib- that's commemorated in July. Uh, the nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary um, is in September, so that's her birth. Um, but we do not have a, um, a day for her, her death or kind of more popularly um, assumption or dormition. Um, you know, and, and we'll talk about some of those things a bit later. But we don't see that at all in the classical prayer books. You usually do see a some sort of Marian feast in August that's on the same day that the Roman Catholics celebrate mm-hmm. the Assumption. The Eastern Orthodox and some others celebrate the Dormition of Mary, um, and In a lot of modern prayer books, they'll call that just the Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary or something like that. Um, But that does not appear in the classical prayer books. Why is that? Again, the major feature in in the classical book of common prayer is Mary's role in the incarnation rather than some of the other issues that get accumulated to Mary, other theological issues. Um, coming from the, the Middle Ages and, and thereafter. Um, questions, comments on that? I hear somebody's mic. But that might not be a question, it might just be a live mic. Okay. Okay. Um, Something that we, you, we sometimes will do, uh, we have a, um, so, so those of y'all that have been uh, in liturgical churches for a while know that we kind of have four main colors that we use, um, violet in, in Lent and Advent, um, red on Pentecost ordinations, martyrs feasts, and confirmations, white on Easter, Christmas, and other major celebratory days. And then green kind of every other time you know the ordinary times in, in epiphany tide and uh, trinity tide there is kind of a secondary set of colors that are sometimes used and we do have for the priest um a, a set of the secondary colors and those are rose so kind of a pinkish color rose for one of the sundays in advent and one of the sundays in, in lent and we'll talk about that this coming sunday because uh, this coming Sunday is one of our is our Advent Rose Sunday, and then we have black, which is um, sometimes used at funerals and often used on Monday Thursday, occasionally. All, no, I'm sorry, not Monday Thursday, but on Good Friday rather. Um, and those that celebrate All Souls will do black on there, but that's not on our calendar. And then we have, um, and then we have a white that's trimmed with a light blue. Which is used for uh, Marian feasts. So we have two days out of the year that we would use um, those ones: the Annunciation and the um, and the Purification. I'm not sure why that kind of light blue becomes associated with with uh, with, with the Blessed Virgin Mary, but um, but that's a pretty common common thing as a, as a secondary set of colors. Um, we do have a, a couple of other areas where where she gets mentioned and i'm only going to do one of those now because i think i'd rather end a little bit early um well maybe not actually there's a lot of stuff to cover okay we'll just keep plowing through until until about seven thirty. never mind uh, <laughs> i look i was looking at my notes i was like, okay actually these are going a lot deeper than i remembered writing okay so um let's turn to the uh, holy communion service and in the proper prefaces now for those of you all that are that are new to to um to the parish um, for certain feast days uh we would add the proper preface uh during the the um the sanctus so i'm sorry during the um the sursum quarter so we have just before we go into the consecration um, you know, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks unto the Lord, our God. I'm on page 76, by the way, page 76. It is meet and right. So to do. And then the priest uh, turns to the table and says, it, it is very meet, right? And our bound in duty that we should all times and in all places give thanks unto the Lord, Holy Father, almighty, everlasting God. Now for certain days, we would then insert another paragraph before we go to what many of y'all have heard you know the therefore with angels and archangels right and on um christmas day we have the one proper preface that mentions uh the virgin mary and it says um it goes like this is on page 77 because thou didst give jesus christ thine only son to be born at this time for us who by the operation of the holy ghost was made very man of the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother, and that without spot of sin. Um, make us clean from all sin. That's interesting. I thought that said some I might have to get back to that next week. It does mention mention Mary, but I, I could have sworn it mentioned um, being born of a pure virgin. Um I wonder if that's a different one. I might be getting my uh, my my times messed up. Um, So we do have her mentioned there. Then in in we do also have uh, the the uh, proper preface for the purification and the annunciation as well as the transfiguration. the same proper preface that's used for all of these. And strangely enough, even though these are for our two Marian uh, feasts, if you could call them that, they don't mention. they don't mention Mary at all in those. Um, so, so those are our proper prefaces. We also have um, within, the, within some of the gospel readings, we have her entering into the story. And so that's, that's what we'll look at next. Um, most of the mentions of Mary come within the Christmas story itself. So these are just the narrative where she really plays the most prominent role in especially the Gospel of Luke, but also um, but also uh, for, um, the, you know, St. Matthew's Gospel. Oh, okay. The, that was the collect for Christmas. Okay. I knew that. I had to look it up real quick on my on the search feature on my notes, uh, so the collect for Christmas says, "Almighty God, who has given us Thy only begotten Son to take our nature upon Him, and at this time to be born of a pure virgin." Um, that's a very interesting way of phrasing it, um, because um, some of the theology that get that gets put on to that phrase isn't necessarily one that we would we would usually see in Anglican circles. So just keep that in your mind. That's the colic for Christmas Day. Um, yeah. So um, as, as I said, um, many of the colics are rather of the gospel readings for Christmas tide um, mention Mary. Um, she's also mentioned in the wedding of Cana story, which is on Epiphany 3. Um, we see Mary at the cross on Good Friday. And Jesus in the temple when he's age 12 on the first Sunday after Epiphany. These are so these are the main stories from the Gospels where she's included. And all of those stories do show up in in, in our prayer book. Um, the Gospels for Christmas tide really, you know, it's it's the feast of the incarnation, so we're not going to see. Um, anything that would surprise us with this focus on on Mary's role in the incarnation? Um, it, at the wedding of Cana, it, it we really don't see any editorializing about Mary's role there either. Um, this is one of those places where um, kind of you know a lot of Roman Catholic popular apologists will say, well, you know, you see that um, the uh, they, they went to they went to Mary to to intercede on their behalf to Jesus and so that's why we should do that. Um, that's a that's just not a good conclusion from the text. <laughs> you know, the, the text really isn't about that. <laughs> and um, so that's 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 a very weak argument that's really kind of starting with a supposition and rather than, you know, drawing that out of the text. Um, but but we do we do see her there. Um, we do see that, um, you know, she's not afraid to go up to him, but most of all, we see her, that she demonstrates faith, whatever he does, um, listen to him, you know, and that's kind of, in terms of her role as an exemplary saint, that's one of the things that we really focus on. You know, she's the one that said yes at the Annunciation. Um, she, she, she always, she says, listen to my son. And, and that's, that's kind of that important role um, you know, as an example for us being, being kind of at the very top of the saints list. Um, then we have this interesting one for, for the gospel from, from the third Sunday in Lent. Let me, let's turn there real quick. Um, bear with me while I get the page number. I did a lot of this using a search feature on a, a digitized version of the prayer book I have. So um, you know, it didn't have page numbers and there was just so much of it, I didn't go back and write them in afterwards. Uh, let's see. Page 128, this is Matthew uh, Our gospel. I'm sorry, page 129, our gospel read from Luke 11 from the third Sunday in Lent. I was looking at the second Sunday there. So Jesus is giving his um, teaching about um, that, that, you know, he can't be casting out devils by above because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And after he gives this, this spiritual warfare teaching, if you turn over to page 130, um, it says at the very end of the gospel reading, and it came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Um, so an inference that we can get from this is that as important as Mary's role is in the incarnation, and we should not diminish that role, it's very, very important, The most important aspect of her as an example is that um, she heard the word of God and she kept it, right? You know, the word of God came to her by the angel and she kept it. She believed the word of God. She did what was said. Um, She said yes and she was obedient, unlike um, Eve, who was disobedient, right? And listened to the serpent rather than to God. Um, Those are the main places where we see her in the Gospels. uh, Mary at the cross on Good Friday that's where um, where Jesus turns um, her over to John you know says to John behold thy mother and says to his mother a woman behold thy son um, you know, it's a very poignant poignant part of the reading and it does play to some of the later discussions about um, you know some some of the other some of the other kind of side issues regarding regarding Mary. Okay. Anything? Anything on um, what we see so far? I know that was kind of a little bit of a fire hose there, Mary. Did, did I see you have you have a hand up there, Mary? No, I didn't actually. But I was just wondering when a while ago when you mentioned that terminology about uh, pure virgin, and then I was um, wondering, <clears throat> does that have to do with the theology of the Immaculate Conception? Or I mean, it kind of seems to tie in with that, and. And it might. The Anglican, Church, the Anglican Church doesn't exactly subscribe to that, does it? Correct. Um, correct. Um, let's put let's put a bookmark in that for towards the end. Okay. Um, but yeah, that is one of, that that is one of those things that that does need to be addressed. Um, did and by by the way, did 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 uh, did y'all read the articles that I sent over um, from from uh, Laudable Practice? Those. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, if um, if if you look in the email, um, you, yeah, th- those they're a relatively quick read. Yeah. Um, the same the same guy did a new article today, specifically addressing some of the um, the nineteenth uh, century reaction against um, and, and even among very very high churchmen, some of the uh, the proto Anglo Catholics, the Oxford Movement guys, um, when. Uh, the Roman Catholic church was beginning to promulgate the dog, you know, the immaculate conception as a dogma. Um, So I might share that too, but we'll probably not get to that till next week. Okay. um, Yeah. So, but, but that is that, that phrase does touch on that belief. And so we'll, it'll, it'll come back up later on, but but, um, yeah, that, that is in the prayer book. Um, and I believe that's kind of coming from a medieval collect, but it, but it was not edited um, by the reformers, if, if so, which which is a little unusual. Um, I suspect that in the eyes of the reformers, what that's referring to more than anything else is the fact that she was indeed a virgin. <laughs> you know, it's kind of modifying, um, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of a emphasizing you know, her virginity there, but, um, but that will, that will play into some discussions later on. Okay. There's one other scripture that I want to look at today, and this is probably, um, close to where we're going to end. Um, we might, we might do one more thing after this today, but this is Revelation chapter 12. If, if you, um, were um, if you're following the 1945 lectionary, so the, the default lectionary for the daily offices in the prayer book, the, the default Bible reading plan. Evening prayer um, from last night, I believe was, was Revelation 12. It was definitely this week. It's even though there hasn't been a lot of readings this week, they're all kind of already jumbling into my head. Um, yes, that was Tuesday. So yeah, last night's evening prayer reading was Revelation chapter 12, although it wasn't the entire chapter, which is a bit of a shame, because we really do need the entire chapter um, to, kind of, to kind of see this picture. If you have subheadings in your Bible, um, you might see, like mine does, uh, it begins with the title, The Woman and the Dragon. And so let, let, me, let, me, let me read those first few verses there. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child... He might devour it she gave birth to a male child one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to god and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place to be prepared by god in which she is nourished for um 1260 days um Then we have the war in heaven with with St. Michael and the archangel, and this does get, um, we do have this passage for for Michaelmas, for St. Michael and All Angels Day, Um, but uh, let's skip to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly. From the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. So as with everything in Revelation, this is, this is a highly symbolic language. It's, it's highly um, coded language. And um, being 2,000 years removed from some of those codes, we don't always get many of those codes. But we certainly see here that the woman is the mother of Jesus. The woman literally here, (laughs) you know, it's a symbol, but the symbol is the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, that is the symbol here. And it's from this passage that we see um, Mary being in some way a type of the church. Um, You know, traditionally, uh, folks would see this symbol of the woman as representing either the church or Israel or some amalgamation thereof because... Um, you know that division between Israel and the church um, is a lot fuzzier than 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 s- kind of a lot of American evangelicals assume uh, because of the left Behind series and stuff like that uh, but but you know the, the the symbol here is you know our Lord's mother is is the symbol here the type of the church and you um, What what we see here is that um, yeah she you know she's persecuted why because she's the one bringing forth the 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 the, the promised Messiah um, which points to that typology of, of Mary as a type of Israel um, not not the definitive type not always a type but this is a kind of type um, you know we, we see a very symbolic depiction of. Um, the Feast of the Holy Innocents when, when Herod goes to try to kill Jesus. Um, you know, we see the, per- the later persecution uh, where, where they try to, where the dragon tries to, to uh, make war and makes war against the rest of her offspring. Um, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You know, again, you know, Mary being, you know, the church, you know, our, our, our mother, the church um, here. You know, Mary is a symbol, a type of our church. Um, You know, in some ways, because of being the one who was the mother of Christ, the mother of our Lord, um, you know, a mother figure for the whole church as well. Um, You know, and and I think think one of the things that we're seeing here is a contradistinction with Eve, you know, Eve was the archetypical mother who disobeyed and, and because of that we all fell you know, Mary's the archetypical mother who obeyed and who listened to the Lord. And because of that, we all have salvation, you know, not because of her actions, but because of the results of her actions, you know, that, that, that because of her obedience, um, you know, you know she, she was the bearer of the Messiah. And uh, how how some of these things like the, 12, the crown of 12 stars and the sun and the moon play into that, um, I'm not really sure, although um, that number 12 almost always is a symbol of Israel and a symbol of the church, is a symbol of God's people. And um, which, which again, points to that, that typology of the church. Um, I think, I think that's, an, that's an important type to see. And it, and it helps us to properly, you know, see the honor that, you know, that, that she has, you know, all generations shall call me blessed. But without, you know, kind of going too far into making her something that she's not, you know, we got to go to Mary because Jesus is too bad, you know, that sort of thing. We're not, we're, we, we're never doing that, you know, um, and certainly we don't see direct invocation of Mary in the prayer book, in the classical Anglican tradition either, um, because, of, because of, of those issues. And the last thing that I wanted to, um, to touch on is that we do see in the prayer book itself Um, several titles, and we'll we'll just end here, and then we'll kind of open it up for discussion. Um, You know, she is referred to in the prayer book as the Blessed Virgin Mary. She's referred to as the Virgin Mary. She's referred to Saint Mary the Virgin, the Blessed Virgin, and then, you know, referred to as a pure virgin. Um, Those titles, again, always pointing us back to that great aspect of the Incarnation the Virgin Birth, where our Lord received His human nature. Okay. Um, question comments on that, and then we'll next week. What we're going to do is look at a, look at uh, some of those um, kind of more controversial historical things. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So th- 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 this is. Um, this is this is a strangely less talkative than I than I expected. I guess this is a lot more straightforward than I expected, uh, which which makes me happy. I'm glad I'm glad that's the case. Um, I will then go ahead and stop the recording. And uh, God bless you all.